The following is an archived podcast presented by the Branson and Hudson Foundation for Podcast Recovery, a Charles Austin company. It is the first and only episode of the podcast. Welcome to episode one. We like to pretend that no one is bigger than the sport of basketball. From the Hall of Fame players, coaches, owners, training staff, the game doesn't stop for anyone. At least, it shouldn't. Well, in 1981, someone was. And it wasn't a Hall of Fame great or a respected coach or a compassionate owner, it was, well, a guy who is the exact opposite of all those people put into one person. Stamp Grosby was the first player, coach, owner, GM in all of basketball history. But who was he? How did this former powder magnet end up being the shortest term owner in NBA history, kicked out of the league by his peers after only one season? Welcome to Smoked. The Rise and Fall of Stamp Grosby. I'm joined today by two old friends. Two men who need no introduction, but I'll say their names anyway. I'm joined by Slut Phillips and Slim Dragoon. Gentlemen, thank you for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having us. Thanks for having us, Kevin. It's a real honor to be here talking about a uh, dear friend of all of ours, Stamp Grosby, and uh, you know a man who's taller than any of us ever will be in terms of his legends, but also, well, only a little taller than me. But Kevin, it's good to be here. Physically not the tallest guy, but let me have a lot of people probably don't know your backstories. This is a story that happened a long time ago. I hate to say it, but you know, we've known each other for a long time. But some people might not 1981 is I mean, it feels like it was yesterday to us, but slut, why don't you tell people a little bit about yourself? Well, I was uh, the assistant coach in 81 for the St. Louis Cigars, which, of course, is a team that Stamp Crosby owned. It was a beautiful team. You know, it was, it was a, you know I, I always said, you know, you know, it was a beautiful brown uniforms. No other team in basketball was brave enough to have brown uniforms and blue and gold. And, you know, we played in St. Louis, and the town really responded to them as an, as an owner. We played in the Basilica, the St. Louis Basilica, before they tore it down. I started, uh, you know, working with a uh, uh, stamp, you know, pre-basketball, you know, but, you know, from his, you know, evolution sort of as a businessman, you know, uh, uh, you know, I followed him from, you know, the uh, Grosby's Fine Powders and when he bought the St. Louis. Well, they weren't the St. Louis Cigars first. They were, what was it? They were the St. Louis Humphreys. They were St. Louis Humphreys. He got the team. He wanted to change the name, kind of brought me on board. So, yeah, I was there the whole year along with, uh, you know, you know, the best, you know, one of my one of my favorite players here, Slim. Well, it wasn't really my choice to be an NBA player. Um I never signed up for the draft. Uh, you all just called my number in uh, the seventh round, 222nd overall. Um, said you need an undersized point guard. And here I stand at 4'11". And, you know, I played a little bit of ball growing up. Didn't expect to ever get drafted. But, you know, they say you, you fill out those draft papers and you get drafted. They call your number up and you got to an answer. And uh, day first day I came to the gym, met you, uh, slut, and... Uh, Met you as well, Kevin, the old beat reporter. But I walked in that gym, and the first thing Stamp Grosby does is he sits me down. He says, sit down, son, and he pulls out a, a barber's bib, and he shaves my head completely. And he leaves out my now signature blonde flip of hair on the front of it. He says, there you go, boy. You got a cupy haircut now. 
Yeah, and, uh, I, I said. I remember he was saying that. He was saying I gave the new guy a cupy haircut. I said, "Well, what's a cupy haircut?" He says, "Like the haircut those little dolls have." And I said, "What little dolls?" He says, "Those little dolls are like uh, cupids, but they, you know, they don't fly around. It's like non-denominational or something like that." And I said, "Well, okay, I guess." He said, "It'll bring in, it'll bring people in the seats." You and know, I, that was I his said, big thing the first year. I said, "Now, well, now everyone's going to kick my ass. Well, they're going to want to kick my ass." And, yeah. and I wasn't wrong. They everyone tried to kick my ass for yeah. for the entire time in my league, which was uh. One season, you know, I averaged about eight points, uh, zero assists. I was a dribble first point guard. Uh, never got an assist all season, but that's okay. That was a uh, stamp was again the owner, player, GM, coach, and his uh, his offense. He always wanted to run that you slut help implement was the stop and think offense. Mm -hmm. You know, don't be in a hurry. Don't it, go too fast. The fan, you know, you would say, you would look at me, he says, you know, the fans come here, and what they pay for is you know a good. You know, basketball game. When you got these guys sprinting down the courts, they're rushing it. He said, "You're ru you don't need to rush it. Even if you hit it, people don't. It, the people can't keep up." He, he'd get so mad when we jump too high. He said, "You don't need to jump that high." You got those heavy shoes for the team. Every you know, everybody kind of, you know, figured out a way to cut those weights off. But uh, he was really, you know, he, he kept saying the next ones will, will, next ones will be concrete. And you know, with him, you never really knew if what he was saying, if he was serious about it, or if he was joking or or kind of what you know a lot of people you know they think of him now as like you know a shameful part of NBA history and you know I find that I find that to be a shame because really you know he's he's a businessman you know you gotta you know he's like a like a Michael Jordan a businessman he's a truly a visionary and honestly you're lucky if you even know the name Stamp Grosby because they have absolutely tried to cover up everything that that man accomplished in one season I mean, think about what we did in one season, Slut. That's truly incredible. So mm -hmm. we're happy to tell the story, Kevin. Well, thank you both for joining me. Uh, I I always felt like I was, you know, not nearly as important as all of you, including, you know, the legend himself. But I am, of course, uh, Kevin Hatleaf. I am a journalist at the time that one season when Stamp Grosby was the owner, player, coach, I was the beat reporter for the St. Louis Spoon, and I was sort of a little bit like the Woj of you guys, right? Would you agree? He would tell, tell me everything, but I was the only person he would talk to. And Stamp was very particular about our meetings. You know, there's sometimes I would get a call from him at 1 a.m. and he says, meet me in 30 minutes on, you know, blah, 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 pond or blah, 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 river. And he would have me meet him out in a rowboat in the middle of a pond. No one else around. He insisted I always come alone. And these are the kind of meetings we had all the time. I was kind of always on call for him. Um, and it would be just, it would just say something that he's going to, you know, trade another player or something like that. It was something very small, even a uh, player no one even knew. But uh, that was Stamp, but he was very unique. And um, I came to think of him as a bit of a father figure. Well, Kevin, you're not giving yourself enough credit right there because, as we all know, Stamp had a certain sort of fondness for subterfuge. And he was sneaky. He was he, a sneaky fella. He was a sneaky guy. And and Kevin, you the way that you handled that information, you either told people or you didn't tell people in all these crazy meetings you'd go to in parking garages and dark little dungeons and places like that. I think you handled that well. 
You know, I, I think with the you know with the thing like Stamp, you know, people always heard the stories. You know, the stories of him slinking around the stadium. He's sneaking. He's a he, slinker. He slunk. You know, he would hang from the rafters. He'd listen to you. You know, he had those big. He had, he had a lot of those. You know, those cone shaped things. You point at somebody with the headphones, and you could hear him more better. Or he would, as a player, he would paint himself as the color of the zone paint. Yeah, and then lay down, and he had a little bit of a belly. And he was hoping he could just hear some secrets from the other teams. I don't know if he ever got any, but he loved. He was that. a chair once on the enemy enemy team bench. That's what he called him. He didn't call him the opposing. We team. We weren't allowed to. If we, if we call, if we said opponent, you all made us run laps. He's we said enemy, enemy team. team. Is you gotta you gotta build a, a mentality, a hostility, because you know what he was really you know ahead of the curve on. He's like when the away teams comes to our home stadium, you know they should they should you know you should be afraid. You know they should not necessarily afraid for their life, but maybe for an injury or like their possessions or you know just secrets or in general. You know I remember a, a very common thing he did to the enemy team was you know they would especially in the first season they made him cut this out after a couple games but he replaced the water tank in the enemy team locker room with soda and so they'd try to shower and they'd just get you know just be soda in there you know well he learned that because as a powder man he had famously had his powdered water that was just really salty water and he would normally you know fund his other business by giving us the team powdered water but it was you know the salinity of that was so high that we were usually very dehydrated and he realized that it was not working out for us, so he uh, used his powdered soda uh, for the enemy team. And Kevin, again, I think your writing reflected the the vernacular of the team by, again, always calling the opponents the enemy team. That was number one. You know, I think to understand a little bit, you know, I, I want to talk about his early life, you know, this kind of stuff he was getting into, you know. You know, he was, uh, you know, he, he got drafted when he was 18 years old. He was going to the Korean War, and, uh, uh, you know, it wasn't a good scene back then. And, you know, before that, he was, a, you know, he was a greaser. You know, he was a hot rod guy greaser. He had grease in his hair because he was all, he, you know, he was kind of girl crazy. Big fan know? of milk. Big fan of milk. Big fan of rolling up cigarettes in his sleeve. And, you know, big, you know, kind of leather pants, leather shoes, leather jacket, leather, mm, leather t-shirt kind of guy. And, uh, you know, he goes to, to the Korean War and he was an advanced recon. So he was all around Pyongyang, you know, from the early days. And, you know, he was a solo recon guy. So he would be out in the muck, in the water. You know, he learned a lot of survival skills of just, you know, kind of living as a, a as a pest. You know, you know, some people say, you know, he became Korea. He likes to say that he became one with the earth, one with the mud. And he would he said, I could move through that country like a living ghost, a specter of death untouched by all who's only bound by my own wit. And I said, you know, Stamp, that's, you know, it's a good thing you got out of there and stuff like that, you know, because it could, you know, it could be very bad. And, you know, that's when he would show the knife and he would get real close and he would show me his skills. He was always cutting my hair. He was always saying, I could make you do anything. I could make you kiss me if you wanted to. I, you know, he is he a man of, you know, profound military skills. You know, he originally wanted to name the team, change it from the St. Louis Humphreys, named after their former owner, Lyle Humphrey. He originally wanted to name them the St. Louis Specters of Death. Yeah, he wanted to name them the St. Louis Specters, and, he, and you know, he was always... The league came down on that hard. Yeah, because that's also, you know, he, was, he wanted to make the logo a gun or a mm. knife. You know, they said no to the gun. He was like, what about a knife? And he was like, what about a sword? And he was like, it's too close to the gun and the knife. We don't like, you know, usually if you would have started with sword, we might have said, yeah. 
And this is where I maybe I'm a little bit biased here, but our rivals, the Satans, they get away with that shit. But the second Stamp does something, they always had it out for Stamp. They always had it out for Stamp. So, you know, once Stamp got out of Korea or whatever, he came back, he did as many tours as he was allowed to do. At a certain point, they just said... Said enough is enough. You know, he spent another year after that war ended He said the war's over. You got to go home. You know, he didn't want to go home, you know. He felt, you know, a spiritual, powerful connection to being a living ghost in Korea. And... uh Basically, he came back and, uh, you know, he, he did what a lot of the GIs did, you know, and take their money and start a business. And that's when he got into powders. And that's when he met me, actually, is when he was, when, you know, when, when he started the powder business. Because I started, you know, I wasn't, a ba- I wasn't a basketball coach at all. I never really even played the sport. You know, I watched it in high school. I, you know, I played it in high school class. You weren't very good at basketball. No, you know, I wasn't. I, I told everybody, it was the first thing I told him. I said, I'm a powder salesman, you know. So he started, you know, the you know he started the powder company, uh, went about two years, and then, you know, didn't really have much luck. He was doing a lot of powdered milk. You know, he tried powdered water. People didn't get it because it was just kind of salty water. It was just salt that you pour water on. And uh, it was when he got powdered soda, that's when his fortune started going Going through the roof, Kevin. I don't know if he ever did. He ever talk to you about the, the the powder business at all, or was it all basketball? There were times when I definitely tried to, um, you know, pick his brain per se, and he was always very uh, cordial to me. He was he would tell me stuff that he didn't tell anyone else. There's things I I'll take to the grave. You two will never know, but those things stamp, um, you know. Uh, he, he was, he confided them into me and I agreed to never tell anyone. And, um, it doesn't matter what, the, um, how old the woman was, he said, but you know, stamp liked to talk basketball with me because he said, you don't care about this other stuff. He'd go on and on for, you know, two hours straight about these girls that he was with last week. Then he goes, what am I talking about? You want to hear about basketball? And I was like, well, yeah. Um, but I, I was always happy to have his company and, um, he didn't like to talk about, you know, the war to me. He, he said the things that I did would probably put me in prison if you knew. And I, I didn't want to know. I was there. I was the beat reporter for, for basketball for the St. Louis spoon. See, that's interesting. Cause all he did was talk to us about the war. Yeah. He but told us a lot about that's, the that's war. All he yeah, talked about. Talk he would, he would sh- interrupt he would practice up. and he would just scream. He would just stare at us. That guy was just staring at us. We're going, you know, coach, you know, what, you know, what are we, what are we doing? And he'd just be looking at us with this crazy intense look in their eyes. And, you know, he would do a good 15 second scream, you know, a fifth, that's a long, like, because you're going like, how long can a guy scream for? Right. I and mean, especially 15 seconds, you didn't really, you know, think that. And he just kind of kept going. It was just, and he said, you know, I wanted you to know I was capable of that. And I'm capable of many more things if you ever doubt me. And then, then we did layup lines. Sometimes we'd be, you know, running plays and working on our stop and think offense. And he would have a, you know, a little bit of a flashback, I think. And he'd blow his whistle. And he'd be in uniform just like us since he was a player as well. And he would just scream at us over and over again, subterfuge, subterfuge. And I never, I don't know, slut, do you know what that meant? I, I never got that one. He was a big fan of subterfuge. You know, he would scream that when in the Grosby Fine Powder days because I worked there as a salesman. I was a shoe shine first. I was the oldest shoe shine boy that had the station. I was 19. I lied about my age. I had a very useful appearance. And, uh, you know, I shined his shoes one day and he said he liked the cut of my jib. And I said, what does that mean? He goes, 
he goes, it would cost you a million dollars to find that out. And I said, okay. And then he said he liked me again. And I said, okay. He goes, you want a job, kid? And I said, yeah. And then I got in his car and, uh, you know, the rest was history. I was a powder salesman. Uh, it was me. It was Glenn Gary and Glenn Ross. And we were just selling powder all day. You know, I called people, you know, I call up cafeterias. I'd call up schools. They say, you know, I got, what, what do you need? I got powdered milk. I got powdered soda. I got powdered food. I got powdered water. You know, he, you know, you'd just say, he would say, you know, if they were looking for a powdered something else, just send him any fucking powder and tell him it was whatever. Now, when they come up with, truly a visionary, when he come out with powdered ranch, because that didn't sell as well as it should have, because I think he was ahead of the curve there. Yeah, he was ahead of the curve, because I was like, what's ranch? He goes, this, this crazy new comp, uh, comp, <sighs> it was this crazy new comp, is a, what, how do you, is a con? Compliment. It was a crazy new compliment that's going to, you know, catch on and stuff like that. And, you know, I, you know, to me, it just kind of, you know, kind of just tasted like tangy milk, you know, it was like a tangy milk thing. And I go, nobody's going to eat this shit. But he was right about that. Powdered ranch. You know, and, and he started making a lot of money, you know, he started making a lot of money, you know, he, he started treating us, you know, we started to get like, you know, he'd give us a dollar, you know, when he started doing good, he was a big dollar guy. I know he was giving you guys dollars. Half, half time, he would go around the locker room. He wouldn't say anything. Remember, he's also the coach and GM. He would just give every single player a dollar. Just go around and he'd say, all right, let's head back out, team. He says all the motivation we needed, you know, and, uh, you know, he bought the team. Uh, you know, that was, it was the Humphreys at first uh, by, what was his name, Lewis Humphrey? Lyle Humphrey. Lyle Humphrey on the team, you know. So uh, when he bought the team, you know, he did the rebrand, which I don't know if he ever talked to you about that, Kevin. Like, he never really told me why it was the St. Louis Cigars that you changed the team name to. Because it was the St. Louis Humphreys, because the previous owner wanted to name the team after himself. He said it made the most sense to him. Uh, he, he also tried for, the, again, the Specters of Death. But yeah, uh, Kevin, do you have any insight as to why it was the, the Cigars? Well, um... I think you guys know, I mean, Stamp loved cigars, but he also loved to smoke anything he could. Um, There's many times where I saw him smoke things. I saw him smoke a June bug bug once. Oh, wow. Um, There was a time where I got a call from him. He was staying at the Westin. I think you guys were playing against Omaha that night. But it was in St. Louis, so I don't know why he was staying at the hotel there, because he lived in St. Louis. But he was staying at the Westin on the 37th floor. He calls me to his hotel room. After about 10 minutes, he finally comes to the door after I was knocking and everything. He expect he was expecting me. He comes to the door. He's wearing nothing but socks and his underwear. And he asked me, Kevin, would someone die if they fell from this floor? <laughs> and I told him, Stamp, I think 37 floors is pretty high. I think they would die. He said, that's all I wanted to know, but come on in. Why don't you stay a while? I got some people coming over for a poker game. And he called over a few people. One was your point guard, Zipper Drill. One of your point guards. Backup point guard. You had a lot of people on your team. Most of the team was composed of point guards. A lot of the team was composed of bench players. I was the undersized point guard. Um, He invited over Lee Marvin, Jack Nicholson, and I think... I think one of the guys from uh, what's that butterfly band? Uh, Iron uh, in the is it uh, Iron Maiden? Iron Maiden, uh, Iron Maiden. One of the guys from Iron Maiden. I don't recall his name. I'm sorry. They came over and played poker, but they'd play for cigars. 
And I said, they they had like a pile of cigars. Yeah, they they wouldn't play for money. They play for cigars. They had nice so cigars. The Annie was just a, you put in cigar. And I big blind small so blind one cigar like two cigars. cigars. I said, stamp. Is this uh, like you like cigars? Is that why you named the 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 band, <laughs> the team cigars, the cigars? And he said, well, that was just kind of one of our backups. I really wanted to call it, you know, the specter of death or whatever it was. And I said, oh yeah, I know that story. And then he kicked me out because they were starting the game. You didn't um, have any cigars, I bet. Yeah. No, I didn't have any cigars, yeah. but I don't, I don't, I don't really enjoy them, so I was okay. I remember when he revealed the uniforms to us, as you said, that resplendent brown with uh, the accents of blue and gold. And as he was showing them to us, he was smoking a cigar, and I realized it's literally just the same design. Yeah, I was thinking, like, it's just not really creative. It was just kind of lazy, but, you know, it looked good. Only team wearing brown. It was, you know, it was a good time. We didn't, you know, away games, home games. We could wear the brown whenever. I don't think any other teams really had any brown in their stuff at all. We're also the only team to have only one colorway. We only had one jersey. No oh, yeah, alternates, said, no home, no away. He wanted to get them to, to, to you know, he was always, uh, you know, I guess I'll, I'll, I'll kind of say this, you know, when he bought the team, right, he negotiated with it. It's, uh, you know, this is all, it took all of 1980, you know, and, uh, you know, he negotiates the team. You know, the whole time I'm just selling powders. I'm, I'm not thinking anything of it. You know, he shuts down. You know, he moved everybody from sales except Glenn Gary because Glenn Gary apparently was. You know, he was a. You know, he lives. You know, he's got four houses now. You know, he did pretty well for himself in the powder business. But uh, he's a powderman. He brought me over to to the cigars, and and I'm like, okay, you know, well, I'm a sales guy. Will you want me to sell tickets? He goes, no. I go, well, okay, you want me to be like an admin or something and like help out like planning with stuff with the team? And he said, no. And I said, well, okay, well, what do you want me to do? He said, I want you to to coach and play. And I said, well, you know, you know, uh, st- uh, stand by, you know, I'd love to help you out, but, you know, I'm not really coordinated and all, you know, I have, uh, you know, I'm, you know, I have, uh, you know, I kind of have uh, chicken legs, you know, it's a, a lot of people think that's like a joke you call somebody, but I got I got a medical condition known as chicken legs. No, your legs look like chicken legs. They're very skinny. Um, my toes are splayed. Uh, you know, they're kind of like they spread out like a lot, kind of like a like a flipper. Well, when you were playing a little bit on the team, kind of testing you out, you would spur people when you get angry. Yeah, because you, you know, kept I kept on trying to spur. I us. got the splayed feet, and I got the bone spur that kind of is elongated. You, you know, you'd get mad and you'd start spurring. Well, it's the only real defense I had against some of these big guys. You know, I'm only five foot four, or whatever, and uh, you know these these big guys on the basketball guy. You know, they're big, so they're coming at me. You know, I use what God gave me, and that's my bone spurs on my feet, and I can scratch them up real good. You know, I can't hurt them really, but I can scratch them. And that's sort of like a deterrent. Like everyone could beat up a house. Cat, but nobody wants to fight the house cat because they know they're going to get scratched. So that was kind of my defense mechanism growing up. You know, as a shoe shine, you often get you know pounded by businessmen who just you know they call you a glass jaw and they knock you. Out. It was a different time; they were allowed to do that. It was you know part of the downside of being being a shoe shine boy. But uh, you know, when we got into the team, and you know, he started you know making me the assistant coach, and I said okay, and I said, well, what does that do? And he said, you know, it's mostly laundry. You know, so I was there busting my ass every day, but, you know, mostly I just kind of handled, you know, the laundry, the shoes, you know. I think mostly you did laundry. Yeah, I mean, it's what it felt like looking back on you it. You did hold the clipboard. 
And, you know, that's when he started making a bunch of weird... Yeah, I held the clipboard whenever he was in the game, which he only played like five minutes. He basically subbed himself out to get technical free throws. If there was a technical foul on he the He was floor. trying to build a stat line, and he was about a 54% free throw shooter. And I got to admit, that's a lot better than I thought it'd be. It's better than what a lot of our team could do, and yet... You know, we were greater than the sum of our parts. That stop and think offense, you would think, well, you know, it's all these all these teams nowadays, they think space and pace, seven seconds or less, and, and we're the opposite of that. I said, use all 24. Don't shoot until it's the last two or three Don't, seconds. Of I would the shot get subbed clock. out if I came across half court in two in two in too close to eight seconds. I had to be as close to eight seconds as I could possibly. Yeah, he wanted be. you to go up the court slowly. That you shouldn't even be at the middle of the court till he made me seconds. walk the dog almost every possession. And then you got to go all the way to you know the end and there you you know you got to wait till two seconds and stuff because he said this is what he said and, and you know I respect him for it. He wasn't really a basketball mind. You got to consider that. But uh, you know he would say you know these fans come here and they're paying you know these hard earned money to to watch you guys play. And so, you know, if you're going to do an offensive possession, you better do it right. So take all the time you need. Don't jump too high. Don't yeah. move too fast. Don't they don't want to see that. No show off moves like post hooks or, you know, post fades. Mm-mm. You know, just shoot it up. He just we're, always just shoot it. We were the only team in the 81-82 season to have zero dunks. He didn't like it. He said it was rude. Also, I don't think, could anybody on the team dunk? No. That's another reason. But also... Stamp didn't want to pay for new rims or backboards, so he, you know he's very frugal. This was an era where a lot of people weren't as worried about that stuff. So I, I know, like, uh, you know, when we started, you know, I started taking over stuff. He, he, his main ideas at the beginning were mostly about like promotions and how the companies run. You know, the basketball stuff kind of took him a little bit to develop into. But uh, you know, I remember those fiberglass uniforms. That was the first decision he made was those fiberglass uniforms. Mm-hmm. And our guy, you know, it's uh, you know, some of the guys on the team, they really, they really. Uh, well, that's what I was gonna say is that even though he wasn't a basketball guy, he got some dogs, right? He had some, we had some really good guys on there. I mean, Zipper Drill. I mean, nobody could really lock somebody down like Zipper Drill once they get across that half court. And uh, you know, Bogo Thomas, you know, those fiberglass uniforms it knocked his nipple clean off. It like sanded it down. I don't know how I did it. I didn't do it to because I wore a t-shirt underneath. I wore, you know, I you know, I I was a little ashamed of my body and stuff because, you know, I had a very delayed puberty and stuff. So I didn't have very many armpit hair. So I said, you know, listen, this these jerseys are gonna be a real problem for me. Well, as I understand, he um his company acquired the manufacturing rights for the the league's uniforms for all teams that season. So everyone in the league was wearing those fiberglass uniforms and a lot of them were really, really you know, affected died. by them. I think somebody on the Knicks died from it. It was an allergic reaction, or they breathed it in or something. Well, and when Bogo lost his nipple, there was a lot of jokes going around about buy one, get one free and all that crap. So that wasn't good for him either. But honestly, again, visionary. Just He got didn't. a fake nipple, though. You know, he, he paid for He got a prosthetic one. You he can't did. even tell. He takes it off at parties. But you, know, you put it on a pepperoni pizza once at the team at the last party of the year, and everybody, I tell you what, I think it was... Uh, I think it was uh, Joe, Lucy, Lucy Landers took a bite, and he almost he you know he he puked he puked all night. Yeah, but then Joe Dreamer finally put it down on a bet. We said, Joe, if you put that down, yeah. But Joe was always the like the go to guy, the buzzer beater. That's what they called him. Um, he was always hitting those last minute shots that you needed every time that we had a close game, which was often, uh, you know, 
Stamp, Coach Stamp always wanted to call his number. He said, we're getting it to negative two. Get it to negative two, Joe Dreamer. Well, everybody kind of had two jobs on the team. And, you know, he was also the bus driver. So I thought I always thought it was buzzard beater because he ran over that buzzard. That's just serendipity I, right you know, there. Everybody else was asleep on it, too. And, you know, the, we're it's about 2 a.m. We're driving to Saginaw. Uh, you know, it's old days. We didn't have the airplane stuff back then. So we're driving to Saginaw in the middle of the night. I'm the only one up. He thinks everybody's asleep. I watch him veer out of the right lane into the left just to drill the thing. And, you know, I never said a word about it. You know, it was probably the least bizarre behavior I saw at that place. Did Dreamer have something against buzzards? You know, I don't know. I think, you know, it's, it's uh, you know, every... Uh, you, but the thing about the team is it was tense, and everyone was always looking for a reason to lash out. A very tense team. There was a lot of outbursts. We took a lot out on the enemy team, because I think that's, you know, what he wanted. You know, we were all told to play dirty, you know. It was a lot of foot stomping. It was a lot of pulling of arm hair. Go for the knees, he always said. Go he for the loved knees. He saying go for the knees. What else did he do when he, you know, he first started? That's when, you know, he did, uh, it was probably within the first week, right? And it's like the town has a new owner or whatever. And that's when he started doing all those weird hires and doing all those weird promotions. Like, uh, you know, I guess, you know, first and foremost, you know, we, we had that super fan that ate trash. What was his name? That was Freegal Worst. That was Freegal Worst. You know, he he was this guy that they hired out of Latvia or something like that. And you know, he uh, you know, you know, he uh, he would he would show up to the halftime show. I don't know where you know Stamp found him, but uh, what he would do is he would sit there at half court, and he would kind of taunt the audience. It was whatever garbage you throw at me, I'll eat anything on the floor. I'll put it in my gullet. He he ate. I saw him eat like seven batteries. And not like triple A's either, like, like, like the the volt ones, like the ones you put in like a fire detector. He he housed two of those. He ate them like it was a bowl of cereal. I saw him eat a whole diaper one time. You know, I don't, I don't want to tell tales out of school, and I don't want to be gross, and I don't want to get anybody in trouble for anything that happened back then. But uh, that really, you know, that really messed me up because you know I was never the same after I saw him eat a condom. Well, with promotions, um, Stamp always said, "Bring the people on the court." Any way to get the fans running down to the court during halftime, which the NBA didn't like that. They always had it out for stamp, but anything that could get people on the court is what he likes. It bring you the know, people erotic on the court. massage night was probably the first time we got pushback from the local community, and I, I was telling them, I'm like, Stamp, you just can't, you know, because uh, let's be honest about like the you know the the, the mechanics of you know erotic massage night. This is like I said, Stamp, huh? this is. He said, we're going to take three halftimes in a row. We're sex do trafficking stamp. But he doubled down on that with Bakken All Night. Yeah, Bakken All Night, he learned because he put a glass dome over it so nobody could throw it or anything like that. So Bakken All Night was another night where, you know, after they had erotic massage night and that went very poorly in the community, Bakken All Night, he was like, I'm going to protect, you know, all the people having the orgy with a big glass dome. But, you know, he didn't put any ventilation or anything in it. And when you got, you know, 9, 10, 11 people on one Chase Lounge, <laughs> you know, the steaming up, the, the, nobody could see anything stank. after a minute. And it stank. And, and all of a sudden, you see everybody just starts running to the edge and trying to smooth away all the steam, pressing their faces against it, knocking off and stuff like that. You know, they got the glass dome off, and, you know, all those guys needed oxygen. No one was hard anymore. There's just know? steam coming from it. It was a real steamy room, you know. And, and I'm talking about two seconds. You know, they really filled up with steam instantly. If we're talking about stinky promotions, though, then he also did the burger pile night. And that was just... 
I mean, I think that might have smelled worse than the Bacchanal. It's just bring the people on the court, and there was just a giant pile of burgers at center court. You just come down and grab what you need to, but... Ooh. What I always liked was the mascot. Um, I, a lot of people probably don't remember who he was. He was called uh, Tabacky Jack, and he was a kind of a portly fellow, um, a bit balding. But all they, they he was not dressed in a, like a costume, like a cigar. He was. I think I don't know if he was supposed to be a cigar. They would paint him brown, and he would just he would do all kinds of stuff like eat cigars, lit cigars, and eat them. Um, he did his famous laydown shot where he would lay under the rim and take a shot. While laying on his back. It was really funny because it was like even up from the free throw. He was just right below the net and he would take a shot. But people loved it. They loved Tabacky Jack. Well, it took him about 30, you know, it'd be a halftime show. You got like 30 tries, but he'd hit it. Well, even it took him about 30 seconds to lay down. You know, his back was not good, you know. And, And, you know, he always said, like, if you bend too much, on your knees or your elbows, the brown paint's going to look fake because it'll like flake off. So he was like, stay as stiff and rigid as possible. So, you know, you know, and also, you know, that black, that brown paint, you know, it, he couldn't breathe through that. So he got, you know, he overheated a lot. Sometimes Stamper could be really mad at us as a team and he would try to sub in Tabacky Jack for us. Yeah, the, the refs, refs would stop him. That'd make him even more mad. Another thing, the NBA and the refs didn't like that, no. Well, he had tomato night, you know, heavily encouraged through all the promotional materials that these tomatoes were made to be thrown at the refs. And, you know, the good people of St. Louis, you know, they didn't comply. They just kind of took their tomatoes home. And, you know, he was steaming mad. He wrote a letter, you know, he, I think he sent it to the St. Louis Spoon. I don't think you guys published it, but, uh, I, you know, I do remember, you know. An open letter to the people of St. Louis. Mm-hmm. And it was full, you know, racial slurs. He says, you know, you, you, you're dripping. You know, you, you 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 ingrates on the hill are getting cannoli. You know, everywhere. He said, "Stop making your toasted ravioli and your marinara sauce with the tomatoes I bought for you to throw at the enemy teams and the refs." Yeah, and you know what? You know, did, did, were you working there when they got that letter? I mean, I was I was following the team. Yeah, I was. Um, <laughs> uh, Stamp was not pleased to say the least. He. Um, I, I didn't take it personally because I knew how, the kind of guy he was. I you know I was close with him, um, and that day when they got the letter, he pulled my hair uh, pretty badly. I had to go to the hospital because he pulled my hair so hard. Um, I don't. It came out of nowhere. Like he was just angry and he just kind of snapped and went for me, and. I don't know if if Stamp is coming at me. I don't know if he's going to give me a hug, if he's trying to kill me. Either way, I I just learned to not fight, and he he took a a good chunk. Oh yeah, of hair and skin from me. At the, but I didn't like I said I didn't take it personally. He's a he was a he was a passionate guy. You know he was. I never really say anything about this. You know because you know I don't want to. You know you know I respect. You know I don't want to speak ill of the dead. But, you know, he would constantly trade for Korean players, and then they'd just go missing. Well, he would send all the – that's another problem the NBA had. He would send all our draft picks. Well, yeah, you know, he, he was – you know, he's you know, he's short on cash. You know, from my perspective, kind of working in the front office at the time, you know, he was, he was short on cash. And he was like, well, I'm going to trade these draft picks. And I go, for who? He goes, what do you mean for him? I mean, he'd give us for some cash. I'm sell them, he said. Yeah, he said, I'm going to sell them. So he would, trade, the he, he would trade each one for like $300,000. And then he'd live large. You know, remember he would, li- he would you know, he'd be showing us all of his. He'd, he ride, would, in, he'd ride in on a horse one day. No reason. And he'd be like, have you ever seen a gold watch like this? You know, have you ever seen a gold bracelet like this? And we'd be like, you know, 
how'd you get that? You know, you're talking about money on the books and, you know, it would just be, you know, he, he uh, was trading out. He actually, you know, they, their draft picks and he traded them up uh, till 2004. He, he, you know, he traded every single draft pick up until 2004, but he, you know, he ended up getting a lot of money for those near the end. He kind of, you know, was trading them for stupid stuff. You know, like the 2003 one was like, he got a hot dog roller. And he bought it from a gas station. You know, the 2001, you know, you know, St. Louis Cigars pick was technically owned by Pepsi Cola. Some court of agreement. I don't know how it works, but yeah, I don't know if they could draft anybody. But if they did, I guess you'd have to work for Pepsi Cola. They call your number. You're up. Those like just deep future uh, picks and everything were kind of a just a huge bargaining token for Stamp. I remember he would get one of those deals and then he would call me up and he said, come with me to the casino. I want you to write about this. And he would call me, he would call me Geronimo for some reason. I don't know why he called me that. And then at the end of the night, he would be weeping. Like, I mean, weeping. Oh yeah. He whipped every night. And he would say, he's a crier. He would tell me, don't ever tell anyone about this night. And I would say like, okay, it's okay, Stamp. And then he would hold me at gunpoint until I left, though, I would say, can I leave? And he says, not yet. And he would just sit there in silence with the gun pointed at me. But I would, I knew how he was. So he eventually eventually, he would start snoring while he's sitting up with that gun in his hand. And I would kind of slip out the, the hotel room. Mm-hmm. He loved to stay at the Westin in St. Louis. I don't know why, because he had a house. Yeah. I think he had like a few houses in St. Louis. Am I wrong? He didn't want anybody to know where he was at any given time. He actually lived in your house for about three weeks. He was, uh, you know, they call it now for anything, frogging. He was just staying in your basement. I didn't know about that. that until, yeah. I didn't know about that until yeah. the day he moved out. I literally didn't yeah, know. Yeah, he was down there for a while. I was wondering who was like taking all my socks. Mm-hmm. Did he bring his musket with him when he was staying at your place? I don't, if he did, I don't know. Okay, is that what he held you up with though? No, what he would hold me up with was a Luger that he that mm-hmm. he um, that he always carried. He said. I bought this from a guy in Korea, and I said, "Why was there a Luger in Korea?" He said, "Don't worry about it." You know, he, he, you know, I remember he started, you know, that's when he started like, uh, you know, he never wanted to hire like an equipment manager or like valets or anything for the stadium. So, but he, but he hired, he would make a bunch of other hires that I found pretty weird. He got a geisha for that season. NBA didn't like that. No, you know, she didn't, I don't even know what her name was. She didn't speak a lick of English. She looked so scared the whole time she was here. Well, and you know how he picked her out. She had the tiniest feet of any geisha she could find. Oh, fight, yeah. He, so. was, he was like, they, you know, she could barely walk on yeah. those her things. Feet were just like, her, sticks, her feet were slightly bigger than his. He was a man of tiny feet. Mm-hmm. You know, he was he was an impressive looking guy. You know, he had a crisp haircut always. He had those glasses, you know, you, you know, you try, you know, the crispest comb over you ever danced. Oh, saw. yeah. Even when, you know, he the would big be sideburns, those sideburns, he, too. With those would, Jim Jones glasses. Oh, like, yeah. If you were to say that to him, then he'd be like, who is that? He'd be honored by the comparison. I think, you know, he was a unique thinker. Five, two with, uh, let's be honest, just a little bit of a tood. you know, and, and but he did change at some point. Yeah, yeah. I mean, well, he had some stuff going on, you know. Somehow you know, he was always tanned, and I feel like he never went outside. I feel like we should, you know, bring this up now because, uh, you know, I don't know how much longer we can go without talking about it. But let's talk about the spies. I feel like we should talk about the spies real I quick. I mean, you can't tell the story. You can't tell the story of um, Stamp Grosby unless you talk about the spies. We talked about his love 
for sneaking being a sneak yeah you know you learn to love you know sneaking around and being unseen and you know being the judge jury and execu- executioner of uh, Edu- educationer uh, the judge jury and educationer of everybody around him you know and they couldn't see him and that made him feel like god to have the power of life and death without even people knowing he existed and you know that's just a personal thing i never really judged him for that but you know when you got the spy network going that was probably I'd say right before the All-Star break, we're really, we're talking about eight, nine, ten spies on, on the roster. Well, and the confusing thing with the spy was uh, was that he kind of wanted you to know that he was spying, which it was, it was sort of a power so play. So it was 100% so, a power so play. So people knew, and then sometimes you felt like he almost wanted wanted you to catch him spying on on you or on other teams or or anyone, women, men. Oh, he was always just kind of looking around corners, you know. He was always, you know, he was, you know, he put cameras up in a lot of places. But they were obvious. Yeah, obvious cameras. You know, but he wasn't, you know. I would turn around all the time and all of a sudden see him, you know. You know, I'd be out there, you know, doing laundry and stuff, and he'd pop out of one of the machines and run out. Well, it's like in the in the war, how um, you'd see all over Europe, people would le- you'd leave that cr- graffiti, Kilroy was here, and the guy little... With his hands up, peering over yeah, the wall, exactly. you, look, you would see, you just see Stamp doing that. He looked like, oh, like is that him? Like, I don't know what that was all about during the war. I'm not really a historian. I'm a historian about Stamp, but he'd sleep in the back seat of my car, and when I'd sit down in it, he'd grab the back of my neck as hard as he could, and he said, "You always have to be ready." At a certain point, more than the roster, 15 man roster on an NBA team, more than the cheerleaders, more than concession stands, there were just men. And trench coats with fedoras just around the stadium all the time, just wandering around doing shady stuff, reaching in their trench coats. He was always he was trading stuff for kids. He says, I will give you a game worn jersey from Post Folder if you give me that mad magazine. And the kid was like always surprised, like, why, why? It's because he loves spy versus spy. He Mm, loved that was his favorite comic. He said they should make a movie of this. He said, Oh, that could be a movie, or this could really happen, or oh, this really happened to me. Um, and I wasn't in any position to to not believe him. I believe like maybe it could have been based on his life. You know, I want to I want to get at you know something bad that kind of happened. And, and to me, this is where the season, you know, it was always kind of going south because you know it wasn't really you know a well run out organization. Let's be it was a sinking ship, but it was January eighth. Doesn't, doesn't mean that we didn't respect our captain. It was January eighth when kind of tragedy struck, and and you know it is, it is tragic about it, but. Uh, you know, Stamp Grosby's only son, Goodman Grosby, was killed by an exotic poison. Uh, you know, I was there. It was a horrible scene. You know, I think it demands a little context to understand exactly how it went down because everybody kind of has a story about what happened because of really how effective Stamp spies were. They ran like a great cover up on it. So at around 9 p.m., I see Stamp Grosby sneaking around the stadium. Now, that wasn't anything unusual. Stamp was always sneaking, scurrying, skittering around. You know, he wasn't, you know, comfortable walking around people if they knew he was there. And, you know, by the time I spotted him, you know, he was complete. He was painted completely gray. You know, it was the same same color as the walls and the service tunnels of St. Louis Basilica. And that was his main spying part, is the artery, the lifeblood of it. So he was always in the tuttles, kind of scurrying around. You know, he never wore shoes, so you can, couldn't hear him walking around. Um, you know, I was really busy at the time. You know, I see him kind of 
you know, painted gray and, you know, I see his little butt and I see him rushing up to his main office that kind of overlooks the court. I was really busy at the time. I was doing my uh, main assistant coach duty, which would, I would wash the team uniforms, you know, around 10 times in a row after the game so that they would shrink a little so that the players would be tricked into thinking they were gaining weight. Uh, Around 10 o'clock, you know, I'm done with my chores. I was alone. So I would lower the rim to about seven feet and I would do cool dunks alone in the arena. You know, I was there, you know, his son, good showed up he came up to me and goodman was an aspiring priest with you know beautiful blue eyes a gentle soul he was always clutching that bible to his chest walking around he said he was given a mysterious note while walking around the street that says father was in danger i said i don't think he's in danger i just saw him painted gray on the front half and he's probably spying on us right now so he said he was going to go up to the office and check You know, I wait till Goodman grabs me to leave. I pull off a 360 windmill dunk on the eight-foot rim, and I was walking around the court pretending I just won the NBA Finals. I was giving a victory speech and pretending I was getting interviewed. Suddenly, like, 10 guys come down from the top of the building on zip lines. They go flying by me. I try to stop them, but they're all wearing black outfits with their faces covered. One of them grabbed me, and he gave me an Indian burn. He looked me in the eyes and told me I'm not important enough, that I don't matter, and that even if I tell people that I saw something, no one would believe me because I'm so ugly. So that made me really sad, so I wanted to go and take a nighttime pain shower. These are showers that I take when I'm feeling on the edge, and I usually listen to white noise and scream, and I curl up in a little ball. So I strip down, climb down in the shower in the locker room, and Stamp Grosby throws himself off the wall and holds a knife to my throat. He calls me some ethnic slurs I don't want to repeat, and I peed on myself. I was scared, and I was nude, so I was kind of flopping around, and the pee was going everywhere, and a little got on his pant leg, so he hit me in the back of the head and tossed me in a trash can. Then he put a lock on the trash can and he left. 30 minutes pass, he dumps me out in the middle of the court naked. He said, wake up. We need to cremate my son because he smoked a poison cigar. He was smoking a cigar too. And I asked him if that was the cigar that killed his son. He said, yeah, but the poison had been smoked out of it already. He pretended that it was his son went on an exotic vacation and bought a bunch of fake plane tickets. And we burned them up in the stadium oven, the one we cook hot dogs in. And then we just hid his, you know, his, his ashes in the, well, in the powder company, we just dispersed it throughout the powder. He made $600,000 on his life insurance, but I can tell it really hurt him. It really messed him up when Goodman died. After that, you know, the whole tone of the season was way different. I mean, I, I, I didn't know that story and thank you for sharing that slut, but, uh, well, I, I, something did change in the locker room after, you know, I, point I, that I, I knew every single detail of that story because stamp, confided it to me when he made me meet him on that uh, um, roller coaster in the middle of the night. (laughs) And um, Stamp was, honestly, he felt bad. I'll just tell, I'll just say that he felt bad about it. So I don't know if that's any kind of, um, you know, kind of peace of mind for you, but, I think it was sort of a, I think it was a spy rebellion. I think it was kind of a counterpunch by the spies. You know, he hired too many spies and they tried. Well, to, a lot know. of the players were spies too. I mean, like, how many guys were on the team? There was like twenty guys. Well, there was fifteen men on the roster. But Quest I mean, Mosin they, was a spy. Uh, uh, Quest was a spy. I, it's hard to tell. At a certain point, you have Flea double. Lamar. You have double agents. You Flea have Lamar was a spy. Yeah. You have triple agents. Can you trust a spy? You hire a man who's advertising himself as a spy. Can you trust the man? No. He's, I don't know anything about spies. The spy network was the downfall. I let of the, the St. spies do whatever they want. And if somebody threatened me, I told them whatever they want. You know, don't tell me nothing I shouldn't know because, you know, I, you know, I'm not brave. And, you know, I, I let Stamp know that very early on. I am not a brave. Well, Stamp man. was a Stamp was a guy that had his 
He had his fingers in a lot of baskets. We'll just say that much. His tendrils kind of spread all over. He was a guy that was prepared to nuke everything in a moment's notice because he said, if you don't try everything, then you didn't try. And he always had a backup plan. He had a plan. He had a plan F. He had a plan X. He had a plan Z. Like the man was always finding a way. If I get backed into a corner, I will blow that corner open with explosives and escape. That's the way he thought of everything. Yeah, most of the corners were rigged to go. Well, you know, I feel bad, Kevin. You don't like to spill too much about Stamp, but did you ever hear about Plan Omega? I remember him mentioning it. Slut, you ever tell you about Plan Omega? Um, was that the one where I had to show up in the in his house at the middle of the night and I had to cook breakfast for him in case he shows up? That was playing Delta. Okay, because for some reason I had to go to his house all the time in the middle of the night around five a.m. and make breakfast in case he sh- and he never showed he up. He did a lot of he did that with a lot of the players. Oh, I think okay. I think even I think even uh, Slim here had to do that. Yeah, I I was playing Beta. You were playing Delta. He would, uh, you know, he what he would do is, you know, you'd have those girls up in those penthouses, you know, and you know he he didn't, you know, he didn't want him, he didn't want to, you know, he didn't want people to know what he was doing, so you know he, you know, he threw him off the balcony. So I'd be down there with, with another guy, I think it was Flip Wilson or whatever, and you know we'd be holding the trampoline trying to catch these girls as he threw them off because he said, you know, he doesn't want any problems, but you know he can't be, he's a private man. It was his favorite way of dealing with uh, any sort of problem was tossing people off of high places. Yeah, all every house he owned, you know, would have a tower just for that explicit purpose. Not just for that. That was part of Plan Omega. Well, he would. I mean, he was just a unique guy. I remember he like usually in the the middle of the night, as you know, he you get a call from him. One day he calls me crying. I thought it was usually his usual crying, but he said that he just saw something on TV, the television that was the scariest thing he had ever seen, and I. after a lot of you know, um, con- you know, consoling him and poking and prying, I got out of him. It was the Mask of the Red Death. It was Roger Corman's Mask of the Red Death with Vincent Price, and and Stamp thought it was real. He thought it was a, a just a real thing that happened, and he was absolutely terrified. And he said, "Who directed this?" And I said, "I said I, at the time, I think I." I think it's Roger Corman. I wasn't totally sure. Um, but he said, can you give me his number? And I said, I can probably try to work on it tomorrow. And I said, why? And he said, I want to kill him. <laughs> and I said, Stamp, we can't kill. He's a famous Hollywood director and producer. We can't kill him. He said, well, he scared the daylight out of me. <laughs> and that was the kind of calls you would get from Stamp. Because he wasn't necessarily a, a coward in the least. He was a very brave. He was a courageous. He was a brazen figure but he also was emotionally very very raw mm-hmm. and if something actually generally made him fear for his life he would tell you you know that regular season too you know all this stuff's kind of going on and you know we, we we get to the point where at the last game of the year we're almost about to limp in the playoffs and uh you know that's a very famous regular season game that one at the end there against the Saginaw Satans yeah it was the Saginaw Satans which kind of ended up being our rival French Claymore was just a bastard. Yeah, just he an was, absolute bastard on the boards. You know, he, he, he was he was known for, you know, being stinky in the low post, too. Mm. And, you know, he'd have that, you know, he wouldn't do any, any deodorant or whatever. And, you know, our, the soda uh, showers kind of backfired in that game because, you know, he rigged up the soda. That was a classic trick in the league. Some teams started bringing their own water. 
But, you know, French Claymore just leaned into that, and he got sticky from the soda shower. You know, you couldn't, he was squeaking up and down the court. You couldn't get a handle on the guy. Everything looked like a foul if you touched him because it just stuck to him. And yet, the cigars came out. We came out. We played our asses off, and only NBA shutout in history is 119 to zero. Final game. Yeah, drew a lot of attention from the league and the media, kind of trying to figure out why this, you know, let's be, you know, below 500 team all of a sudden gets a shutout. And to be honest, I didn't really know, you know, the story. I mean, I don't know if any of you guys kind of know the story of that one. So this is Plan Omega. That's Plan. The last game was Plan Omega. This is the exact use of uh, Plan Omega. I mean, that involves the witch, though. Oh, I remember the witch. Samuli. Yeah, you know, I thought, you know, you can, I was asking him, I was going, Stamp, can you have a witch as a guy? And yeah, he open hand slapped me. He did not like when you open asked hand about the witch. Me. I was just, you know, he I was would, just, he would parade Samuli around and you would see him walking around with Samuli. But you know, you, it's like he's at a warlock or something because I thought was, and he hit me, you know, he knocked the snot out of me, you know. Yeah, um, NBA decided to come down really hard on him after the incident with the witch. You both remember that. Kevin, you remember the incident with the witch. Oh, yeah, that's what, you know, kind of ended the whole thing, that witch. Well, Samuli is just the tip of the iceberg. Well, what's the story on that? What's the story on Samuli? Samuli the witch was kind of a Rasputin-like figure. Right. You know, he was an advisor, a you know, He shrunk that one player. Who did he shrink? He, put he him in- shrunk slice persons. Yeah, he shrunk him. I was like, I didn't think. So I thought, you know, this guy. He branded a- Legs Marlowe. Did you know that? He nah, branded him. Like, is it a property of? I think it was the initials for um, a Stamp. I think it was SG. I think he, he branded him for Stamp. You know what he did? He put a bug in my ear. He wouldn't tell me what the bug was or what it did, but the bug went in, right, it went in there. Yeah, it's not something good. So, I don't know what's happening. I felt all right, you know, after that, you know. So Samuli was this Rasputin-like figure, possible lover, can't speak too much on that, but he's kind of a patsy for what was really going on. And, I mean, there's no subtle way of putting this, but Grosby was fucking fish. He was what? He was fucking fish. Big fish, groupers. He would get groupers flown into St. Louis. He would fuck them. To help the team? Well. That's what the witch told him to do, though. That's what he told that's me. That's Samuli's advice. He was doing was, it for the team. It was playing Omega. You know he preferred, you know he like tall, leggy brunettes. That's what, oh, that, yeah. He, he always was, told me that. He was pretty, somewhat normal sexually, I think. Yeah, he just but liked. But he believed in the occult. He said he liked good old-fashioned TNA, you know, that's so what he, he said. He wasn't fucking fish for some sort of sorted he carnal didn't like tree. It. You know, he didn't like it. He, he, he believed in it. the energy of it. He believed in the energy of sexuality. He well, told me this all the time. Like, nearly every, I think almost every interaction I had out of thousands with Stamp, he told me about the energy of sexuality and how powerful it is. And that was sort of his code word for what he was doing in the name of Yog Krillin. The eldritch entity and from the darkest, remotest, remotest parts of the, of the cosmos, right? It was Yog Krillin? Yog Krillin. And coach, I know, you know Goodman. Oh, yeah. We all know boy. Goodman. He was known as Stamp's only son. Yeah, he was kind of, you know, he was really important. I'm pretty certain son. Stamp has many sons. I can't talk about it. It though, was the but... only one he really recognized. Right, right. The only other son I met because Stamp was a father of many. And I only met Zabuk. Zabuk Grosby, the estranged son of Stamp and maybe the avatar of Yog Krillin, but he was a very cute kid. He had the head of a fish, but a cute kid overall. 
And he really liked hoops. He was into Did he get one of the fish pregnant? I mean, I don't know what unholy sort of ritual went on, but something happened. There was a fish. He had a fish kid. Well, I he, guess he, more power he to him. He was a know? man with his fingers in many baskets. And Stamp was obviously secretive about Zabok, right? No, oh, I would be too if I had a fish boy, you know? Well, well I think he, like he just had wide set eyes. I don't know if he actually had a fish head. I never met the kid, though. It was... No, he would bring him. He's a big hoops head. He'd bring him into the locker you know, room I'd after smell, the games. No, and get, I smelled it. It would smell like fish in there. He'd, he'd keep him in the ice bucket. He'd bring him into the locker room for autographs after the game. When I asked Stamp if I could meet, um, I met Goodman many times. I tendered his his services. You never met Zabak? I never met Zabak because when I asked Stamp if I could meet him, he said, no, you don't want to meet him. He's too ugly for you. He's a cute kid, but he has a fish for a head, yeah. So, you know, the NBA passed the uh, all those bylines and law, and, you know, clauses about nothing occult happened. Yeah, it was the satanic panic stuff was going on, you know, you kind of got caught in crosshairs there. And yet Saginaw Satans never got in any trouble. Again, they always had it out for us, but the Knicks got rid of their druids. Yeah. The Heat got rid of their hags. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But Stamp would never get rid of Samuli, the witch, nor his son, Zabuk. Yeah, right? nobody saw it coming, you know. You know, everybody else was able to get ahead of the curve, you know, but you know, he really kind of was stubborn on that regard. So there's the final game of the season, right? And at that point, Yog Krillin smiled upon us. And I'll be honest, I don't remember a single thing from that game. Yeah, I, I remember the beginning. I remember the tip-off. And then it just kind of, it doesn't even go black. It goes red. Goes red. Yeah. And then it kind Were of weird... you at that one, Kevin? Oh, of course. Uh, it was. Uh... Do you remember anything? I remember the other team was doing their best. They could not catch up to you guys. They you turned mean the enemy team. Well, I try to be a little bit neutral. I, I, I admit my bias to the cigars, of course, but the enemy team, they had a record amount of turnovers, I think, that night. Um, I think they had 200 turnovers. I think it was about 247, yeah, actually. It was, a lot of yeah, it was a lot more than 200. Yeah, Butterfingers. I don't, I don't remember a single you thing guys, You guys that were playing, and then you... I played? You coach. No, you were on the sidelines. You were probably... Um, the color of like sheet paper. Okay. And you were sweating profusely. You could see it through your suit. Your armpits were just soaked through your suit jacket. I remember getting, I remember just I waking thought you were up. I just nervous I because I was a big home game. fully dressed. You know, I was covered head to toe in blood. I just remember being in the shower, waking up in the shower and my nose was just bleeding profusely. I was, uh, you know, I don't, I mean, I'm too proud to admit that, but in the interest of journalism, just explaining it, you know, I took a number two in my pants. Well, it was a, it was a very unique, it's a, it's a record that no one else will ever touch. Obviously that's not possible. I don't think, but what happened when you guys go to the playoffs? I mean, I'm sorry to bring it up, but at that point, the NBA cracked down on plan Omega. You know, they're sending a priest to every game, you know, they're sending, and not just like a Catholic priest, you know, they had sort of like... A, the Pope was at the They games. had like a multi-denominational sort of like religion, like Avengers type. They had, like an, they had type. like an omni-exorcist. Yeah, they had like a Jewish guy, they had like a Muslim guy, they even had like a Baha'i guy. So that was what really, the NBA then, we know what happened with the governors. Yeah, and they, you know, they, you know, of course... Uh, you know, we get swept by the Saginaw Satans because, you know, we're really not, you know, we're not in our element, you know. You know, we, we got close in, in the second, you know, the third game, which was like our first home game. But, you know, 
at that point too, you know, you know, they were cracking down on us so much we couldn't even do the regular tricks. We couldn't do the show to showers. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we replaced all the games. We didn't have water. time to stop and think. We made them, you know, drink soda during the games. You know, so they shut down all of that. You know, they shut down. We used to, you know, have some of the spies pretend to be chairs. You know, and they'd sit in them and, and they'd, they'd grab the players when they sat down on them. They grab them and you know, you kind of like making them feel like you know homophobic you, stuff you t- like you that. You tickle them a little bit. And called it psychological warfare. You know. And, you know, yeah, but that was the that was the end of it right there. That was the the nail in the coffin for Stamps uh, NBA career. They, I mean, it was the only team to ever be actually liquidate, bought and liquidated by the league after they forced Stamp to sell the team to the league. Um, I don't think anyone that was on the team went to play again. I mean, guys, the great guys like Grail Masters, Heaven Weathers, um, Bruce Worldburner. Worldburner. Worldburner was going to, he would have been the original MJ. He would have been better than MJ. He was a bucket, you know, but he was a walking you know, bucket. You know what he did? You know, he stared, uh, you know, I didn't believe this till you kind of told me the context of this. You know, it was a practice. He shows up, he's white as a ghost. And, you know, he said, he, uh, he said, a fish boy saw into my soul. And he told me what my value's worth. He said, my soul's useless. Says flitty and flimsy, and will blow away in the first instance of divine wind manifesting itself on this mortal plane. Zabak would sneak around to places. I mean, they try to keep him, you know, deep. Oh, deep you know down. what? Actually, the one player that went on to play, I think, in it was like Russia or Europe somewhere, was French Claymore. Well, French Claymore was on the Saginaw Satans. Oh, that! But didn't the Satans? A lot of them didn't play anymore after this. That those playoffs, right? Think again. I think the powers of Zabuk and Yog Krillin really infiltrated them for a while, and yeah, he eventually probably did go overseas. You know, it's a shame that Slim didn't get a chance to play because you know it was really you know great having an undersized point guard on our team. You know, you would think that you know of of course you were also a thirty four year old rookie, which kind of makes you know, uh, you know. Uh, but you know, you a lot of people don't you know you technically have six years eligibility at college, and you didn't go to to, to you went to what. Uh, uh, I went to trade school. You know, you yeah, you were playing trade school. You got drafted out of trade school. Mm-hmm. You know, I remember actually scouting on you, Slim Dragoon. They sent me just to watch basketball games. They didn't send it to like I was watching high school. You just games. watched me fix refrigerators. Yeah, so you know, you were on the bench, and then uh, of the trade school stuff like that, and you know, I, you know, he's telling me find anybody interesting. You were the shortest guy there, so you know, you know, he was trying to make me a spy at first, you know, so I was like following you home and I tried going in your house and stuff like that. And I was able to find your phone number. We were able to sign you. Yeah. I mean, all things said, I'm happy to be a part of NBA history. Um, Stamp should rest in peace. Um, yeah, by lives, the way, I'm, I'm not sure Kevin, uh, he, he lived to be a hundred years old. He died on Christmas day, his which, birthday. which was his birthday. Surrounded by his family at the stroke of midnight, the bell went and he, fell over like a bug on his back and he was just stiff and de- instant like rigor mortis they couldn't I, I move couldn't him. I couldn't make it I was um unfortunately I was across the country I believe he was in St. Louis correct Oh yeah he was at the Westin <laughs> He was he, at the uh, Westin when he died I was um I was with Jimmy Fallon that night but I did feel kind of like a whisper in the wind when at the stroke of midnight it was kind of, it was kind of like I knew. You know, he, he always told us before every game exactly how he wanted to die. We yeah. say, "I want to die in my bed at the Weston Hotel, surrounded by my family, at the stroke of midnight, 
on my birthday for every game. You would tell us exactly that. And, you know, after a while, we, we kind of, it kind of just ran through our heads. But, you know, it happened. The man believed that into existence. You know, the fish boy actually, you know, I, I heard he uh, went to community college. He opened a yogurt shop. Yeah. Zabak's doing very well. Okay, right he's now. doing well. It's he's a different age nowadays. You it's know, a 40 age. years later, people are accepting of an avatar of Yog Krillin. So. You know, I like, I always thought he was a cute kid. Just had so, a- you know, it, it ended unceremoniously. We got swept, you know, he got a ton of bad press. They were eating him alive in the press. And they uh, bought all the jerseys and burned them. There's no more. Yeah. They didn't, they made jerseys. it illegal to sell St. Louis cigar stuff. You know, they, they got rid of the team. They were, t- you know, the NBA, you know, they got a little thuggish there. They were, they were hitting members of the media, telling them not to talk about the St. Louis cigars. They knocked down the St. Louis Basilica. They paved it over. They just, did a flat concrete pavement after they knocked everything it's down. It's still there. It's just a lot. It's not being used for anything. There's a yogurt shop there ran by Zabek still. But, oh, really? Yeah. yeah, it's pretty good. You know, it's it's a little fishy yogurt, but, you know, I guess that's his style. Mm. I think it's because he touches so much of it with his hands. He, does, just, he doesn't wear gloves. No, he doesn't like the stuff. They don't fit. The, the scales rip them. But, you know, that's kind of how it ended. It was, it was unceremonious. It was, it was kind of, uh, uh, you know. And it was kind of a lost story. I mean, we talked about this. The NBA kind of swept this under the rug. They took all their money to cover this up. They um, paid people off. And I think it's enough time has passed that it's time we we wrap this story up. I mean, it had to be told, though. Um, I'm very much proud to be part adjacently to the story of Stamp Grosby and the St. Louis Cigars. And, you know, everything that happened, happened. And people need to realize that this is real. And these were people real li- people's real lives. And this is a man who is a titan for one single season. We came in with a bang and we... Uh, you all went up went in out, smoke. Kind of went out in smoke, yeah. Well said, Kevin. That's why you're the writer. It was like a cigar. Or is it smoke metaphor good enough to that i should have just i shouldn't have said anything no you no it's okay i gentlemen i really appreciate you joining me today as always you guys are legends you are dear to my heart this team is dear to my heart i wish there could have been something more something different but we at least know that no other team will accomplish what the st louis cigars did that one season they went up in smoke <laughs>